0: Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast, and my name is Philip O'Connor. That's probably the least interesting thing you're going to hear today. Now, way back when the internet was still something that came down your mother's phone line and into our house, I was doing something that we used to call presenting a radio show, right? Now, it was very like a disposable podcast or an audio version of Snapchat. You went into a studio, you talked about something, and then it simply disappeared forever. Back in those days, one of my favourite people to have on that show is our guest today. Back then, he was a young man with an enthusiasm for animals that was as deep as it was boundless. Today, he's still a young man, but now he's also a zookeeper in Dublin Zoo, as well as a broadcaster and podcaster that brings the animal world to the eyes and ears of people young and old. Brendan Walsh, where does this interest in animals come from for you, my friend? Hi, Ophiel. Thanks for
1: having me. Um, I, I really think my love of animals is genetic. I, I think I'm, I was born with a, a passion for animals. My earliest memory is standing in my kitchen in Merino and seeing guinea pigs and rabbits running around the bottom of our Avery in our backyard. And I just thought, I don't know what's going on there, but whatever that is, that's my life. That's and me. That's me. And I just, I, I, I've never deviated from that. I, I have an interest in airplanes I've an interest in football, but my only passion in life is, is, is animals is, is nature.
0: I suppose we should probably go into that a little bit deeper, right? Let's talk about your dad, Noel. Noel was just, um, you know, we'll have to admit, I've known you and your family pretty much all our lives, right? I went to school with your brother. Uh, You're a little bit younger than he is, but you're the same age as my younger brother. So we've known each other for a long time. And I've been in that garden. I've seen that aviary and those bunnies and those guinea pigs. And I've seen, you know, birds eating the fish out of your father's goldfish ponds. Where does your father get that interest from that you got genetically?
1: I, well, I think he's a genetic. I do believe it. Like, I mean, I've worked with so many people in Dublin Zoo and I've met other people at conferences and they would say similar stuff. And of course, new loves are formed with, with the joy of genetics as well. Um, but I do think it was just born. I mean, I've learned things about genetics that memories can be passed on through genes things like that. So like mm. his great memories of, he's amazing at spotting birds and trees and, and birds nests and, and things like that. And he's got a great respect and love of nature. And, like he, he, he could spot the nests in a, in a tree far quicker than I could. So he was able to teach me a lot growing up and to this day, you know, um, especially about kind of Irish wildlife. I was thinking of Irish wildlife and global wildlife and about, and, you know, including fish as well. We had fish tanks and obviously the aviaries you mentioned mentioned. And, and that gave me my basics in learning about how to look after animals. You know, your observations every day, your feeding and cleaning every day. trying to keep them enriched and keep them happy and healthy and not putting wrong animals with animals they shouldn't be with things like that. So that gave me a good grounding and and how to look after animals. And, you know, every weekend we'd go to different forests and different parks and we'd be taking in whatever wildlife you could see.
0: I mean, much at all is that people appreciate a visit to Dublin Zoo or an animal park somewhere. Like it literally is on your doorstep, right? If you go into a forest or you go into a sort of a woodland or whatever, you're going to find an awful lot of these animals. You just have to look that little bit harder for them, right? Well, that's it. I mean, like in Dublin Zoo, it's got obviously animals that are virtually all of them are
1: easy to see. Sometimes you won't get to see them all if they're if they're after having a baby or if they're moving to a different zoo or things like that. But most bees, and of course, plenty of them, have, all of them have options to go somewhere quiet as well if they want. Obviously, with forests, you know, I, I think even just upturning a log or upturning a rock or a boulder, you will see wildlife. And obviously birds are everywhere to see, you know, from um, hooded crows. To, I mean, even birds of prey. That, I never saw a bird of prey in Ireland until I was probably eighteen, I'd say. Mm. And now you do see them more often. And you have to be careful. You have to watch out. You have to know where you're going to, to find them. But this summer, I've seen um, uh, peregrine falcons and long-eared owls in Dublin. Yeah. You know, and chicks and everything. So you know, if, if you're interested in these things, you'll find you, you'll get a, you get an inkling of where to go and where to find them. And your ears are very important as well, as a guy's listening. You know, mm. it's not just about watching what you see. It's about what do I hear? I remember hearing the owls before I saw them and seeing three chicks. was amazing.
0: Um, Brendan, how much of this for you is a job? And like, do you ever switch off? Are you, you know, Brendan, watch a zookeeper twenty four seven? Like, can you ever turn off? Much to the detriment of my wife, I think. Yeah, the answer
1: is I don't turn off. No, <laughs> so like, <laughs> I, I love like reading BBC Wildlife Magazine. I love reading books that come out, and especially now with the advent of podcasts, I I would say I listen to at least. 10 podcasts a week you know um some like mostly wildlife but also comedy i do listen to our as you do
0: uh, discerning listener that you are
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so i just think it's amazing now that, that the internet has brought some some bad things to the world but i definitely think it's brought lots of good things of course as well so like when i was growing up for me to learn about animals i had to afford to buy a book and I remember one of the first books I bought was the San Diego Zoo and Well Animal Park book, and I bought that for ten pounds, at a time when ten pounds that would have been about nineteen ninety. And I bought it Easons St. Talbot Street in the middle of Dublin, and that was a huge purchase for me. I remember seeing it first and going, "Oh, I have to get this book," and wishing and hoping that it would still be there the next time I go back in with enough money to get it. Hmm. And because you obviously it was all cash, you know, you didn't have a, 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 a card to, to buy it. The internet didn't exist. And what I did do was write to zoos. And I wrote to zoos, all the zoos in Ireland, in Britain, and, and in America. And every zoo wrote back to me, you know, and, and it was at a time when zoos had, had even less money than they have nowadays. Mm-hmm. But they all wrote back, and it was just great to make that connection. Um, I was writing to the zoo since the age of of, of 12, knowing I wouldn't get the job in. Get, sorry, wouldn't get a job, but I wanted to, to be a thorn on their side. I wanted them to, to know my name. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, I did, I did get a job a few years later, you know.
0: Mm. To put that in perspective, back in 1990, I think that was just before I went to Greece for a summer, and I was earning about £90 a week, right, so that would have been half a day's wages just for one book, right, which is, that's an awful lot of money, you know, if if you want to sort of see that in today's terms, you know, it doesn't matter where you live in the world, you know. Um, Tell me a little bit about the podcast, because one of the things that when we started doing community radio back at North Dublin Community Community Radio, I can't, you can remember the year much better than I do, I tend to forget those things, right, what year was that, Ninety three. It was August 1996. 96, okay. Jesus, hey, I'm getting yeah. older. I go, yeah, back there. But uh, I used to bring you on to talk about my, uh, animals, and it was kind of like just i just wind you up and let you go. And I'd ask you a question every 20 minutes, and you just keep going. And it was brilliant. And all I know about animals goes back to that show. Now you're doing a similar thing in a much more structured way in the RTE podcast. So just tell me a little bit about the podcast that you've done for RTE.
1: Yeah, well, fortunately, like I mean, I, I love animals and I love talking about them as as you well know. Some people can't shut me up. Um, but I got talking to you know, an old schoolmate of mine, Paul Achran, who is is it does very well in, in the podcast world and he teaches a lot of people about podcasts. And and we just got talking, and I was saying I wanted to do a podcast and about animals. And that's all I was just thinking, you know, you know, I, I was never expecting it to, to go as as necessarily big as, as it has. And um he he mentioned to me that RTE. Um, had mentioned you know kind of informally that they might be considering a podcast about uh, for kids so we got in touch with uh, their um, I'm quite certain his role is the head of um, uh, children's radio um, or along those lines anyway Nicky Coughlin is his name and so the two of them have amazing technical knowledge and so They were able to take care of those, as officer guards, the computer stuff, as I would say, like looking at the podcast up on the screen with the sounds and the animal sounds that I recorded. I recorded a lot of animal sounds in the zoo prior to COVID, but during COVID, it was even easier because you didn't have as many vehicles or as many visitors walking past that might, you know, you might have an amazing Siamang uh, Gibbon calling out amazing calls, and then it might be ruined by a tractor going past or something like that. So when the zoo was much quieter during lockdown, obviously the zoo was completely closed, like nearly all zoos in the world um invented lots of recordings so I was able to use them nice and handy for for the podcast and I basically just sat down I'm, I'm a bit old school I, I do obviously can use a computer but I like my pen my 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 my, pen, uh, my my A4 pad and just scribbling down ideas and I wrote down what I did what what episodes And what's the podcast is podcast called That's Animal and um, kind of a, a bit of a 90s term so but hopefully kids get it and um, and it basically wanted to talk about you know it's aimed at children aimed at age to 11 year olds but with the with the goal hopefully of of entertaining families and we have had nice people coming up to me in the zoo especially and saying no it's it's a weekly treat for them now to to listen to it and i also wanted variety though i didn't want to go for the six most popular animals i think you know i wanted to do you know kind of do justice to the animals or maybe aren't so obvious like the sloth, and the scimitar horned oryx and even dinosaurs Mm-hmm. um because dinosaur story is, is, is so much more complex than we originally taught and i love talking about them but we went to a different um different section of the zoo each episode but we didn't just you didn't just hear me talking we, we heard the kids talking and then we also went to the keepers be that me or be the other keepers i was in the zoo to get a nice balance of of, of of how we work with the animals and i'd write out the uh, the concepts in advance of what we wanted to talk about beforehand
0: I remember hearing the first episode and it was amazing because it was just, it was so you, you know, now I could tell that you were sort of, you know, you were reining yourself in just a little bit, which I don't think you should do. I think you should be you full, like full-time, permanent, but it was absolutely brilliant. And just that thing you said of hitting that sweet spot between aiming at the children, but making sure that adults can listen as well and not feel like they're being talked down to, right? I was walking around as a bearded old man listening to this and going, okay, he's not patronizing me here. This is stuff that I'm enjoying learning as I go along. What's the plan for the Brendan? Is this like, you know, we're going to do six episodes? Episodes and then that's it, or, or do you plan to keep going? With it? At
1: the moment, the six episodes are done and, and have been broadcast, so it's really down to RT and the zoo now. and um, I would certainly happily do another one, um, and if another one is done, and hopefully more than that as well, I'd, I'd love to. I mean, I, I was in Denham, um, Kenny, in the middle of Ireland uh, this summer, you know, and, and exploring Ireland like I do every year, and um, I was recording bats, and um, I bought a bat detector. And so I just got to have my own recorder now. And it's, it's amazing how basic the material can be, but you get it. Okay. I, I'm going to have to stop you there. What the hell's a bat detector? How do you it, use that? It's, it's, it's a device basically that would fit in your hand. And um, if you imagine like a calculator size, you know, the calculators from the 90s, a bit, big, a bit bigger than a smartphone and a little bit wider, um, but probably lighter actually. And basically they tune in, Well, you tune the thing into whatever frequency. So say if you're after Pipistrelle bats, if I remember correctly, they're at four to five kilohertz uh, sound frequency. So if you get the sound of a bat at that frequency, it, that means that that bat is a pipistrelle bat, um, and then you can move the the, 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 the dial around, like basically tuning in the radio. Mm. So if you if you a lot of a lot of time you find bats, they are pipistrels, which makes it a bit easier. Um, but I did find uh, another one or two species as well because of the frequencies and and makes you quite certain so it's a it's a i've only been doing it the last two summers so i'm very much a beginner with it but the device technology is quite easy and it's just, it's just very cool to, to, to learn more about irish wildlife you know the bats and the and the owls and the, the falcons this year but you know I, I, um, a few of our friends kids and um, came down to me uh, to the river and um, because obviously bats come out at night time and, and, and uh, over water especially you'll get more insects therefore you'll get more bats the bats in europe um Basically, all of them are all the species are insect eaters. You know, the in warmer parts of the world, of course, they're fruit eaters. Mm. Um, so where you've lots, that's why it's so important for to, you know for farms to not use pesticides and councils not to use pesticides because these are wiping out the insects, which of course then in turn wipe out the bats. Um, and so it's it was a very very amazing experience though to to hear the bats. Like I don't I I always think any of these experiences, I do think that everyone would be impressed. Okay, they might get bored after ten minutes. Mm of hearing them but i do think that most people i think that all people will be fascinated at the start and when you see them moving and a lot of time they're flying directly over your head obviously they never land in your hair they never land they never hit your face these are just myths by cartoons and and, and you know it doesn't happen they're, they're their echolocation means that they are just not going to go into your they have no desire to get caught up in your hair they're just you know urban legends you know
0: that's amazing because I was actually during the summer here in Sweden, about two hours from Stockholm. I was walking along a sort of a country lane at night and I was thinking about that because there's insects everywhere here. You get eaten alive, and something hit me here, right? Something flying hit me, something of a considerable size. And I thought it might have been a bat because whatever hit me was pretty hard and i figured well birds are small and they're soft and that kind of thing but it must have been a bird instead that sort of flew uh, into me i'd say like if, if it was only just a tipping off you i, I would say it could have been a bat you know i mean yeah. as
1: a full-on collision and smack i'd say no but if it was as a tip i mean some insects are very very big um but i, I wouldn't disagree that i know i just said it wouldn't smack into your face and I, I still wouldn't think they would but as regards tipping off your last second you know mm. maybe it, it might have been a bat but um, it was late at night. Um, obviously, most birds are asleep. The, the good old owls are coming out to, to hunt. Then, yeah. um, and they are obviously very silent as well. But yeah, no, it's 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 fascinating to get out there and get your hands dirty and and see and hear these things.
0: Yeah, well that's the like I mean, remember in this little particular place now it's very dark. There's no there's no street lights, there's no nothing like that. And the sounds that you hear now that you mention are absolutely extraordinary because you don't have traffic going by to and to disturb them. And then you'll see tracks in the morning now, you know, these are the kind of things that I'll WhatsApp you a photograph of and go, Brenda, what the hell is that? And is it going to eat me? Kind of thing, you know? Uh-huh. Um could I ask you a question, Brenda, about the pandemic, right? You mentioned there that the zoo was closed to visitors, right? But the animals still have to live, they still have to be fed, they still have to be cleaned. What effect did the pandemic have on the animals when they're daily life was an awful lot quieter than what it might have been did you notice any difference in them during that time
1: yeah i mean to, to give a, a definite answer is is uh, is, is obviously hard because i love to i love the joy of science and i love looking at things properly with data and everything like that but like anecdotally looking at some of the species i do think they i definitely think they all noticed mm. whether they were affected by that or not i i the, the two kind of areas i i would always remember is is a world or reptile house so I, I would have walked past that window their, their individual windows you know from crocodiles to snakes to tortoises and turtles um many times and they generally wouldn't be a whole lot of reaction you know they they're, mm. they're, 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 most reptiles by nature especially the carnivorous ones stay still to 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 maintain energy to not waste energy mm. um but I did notice a couple of days where I walked past and virtually every animal came up to the glass yeah and that that has never happened before or since lockdown so I do think there was an element of here, what's going on? Where where are all those people gone? Uh, You know, I do think there's an element to that. You know, it could be wrong, but it it is, you know, I'd I'd say it's fairly significant that they only did that during lockdown. And then the orangutans, um, you know, are one of our closest relatives. They, um, to me, seem to miss people. I do think that. I've often thought that during the winter as well. They do seem to to notice people being gone more than a lot of other animals. Um, And so basically, if you can imagine our orangutan habitat is in the middle of the zoo in a big lake, and um, and if we call basically one part of the island, uh, prior to lockdown, they would use the whole island. because The food is, is elevated really high in the middle of trees and, you know, they're, they're kept busy by having to search for food. They can't just sit on the ground. They've got to go climbing up into trees to get the food from them. Um, so the food is put in the trees up high every morning. So they, throughout the day, they would lose use the whole and um, they would use the whole habitat quite extensively, you know, going from different parts. And it's quite a big area during lockdown. I wasn't working on the section, but the staff that were, um, they they used to have their tea breaks and lunch breaks in the orangutan house. So the kitchen is attached; the staff kitchen is attached to the main body of the orangutan house. So they would hear them, they would sense them, and they would see them walking through the house regularly. And um, during lockdown, the only staff that were on that because because of, because of uh, isolation, we weren't to go to that part of the zoo. They weren't coming to our part of the zoo. We were even using different entrances and exits, so with different clock in points to clock out points. So, um, they were sitting at the, the staff are sitting at the front gate, which is basically close to the North end of the, uh, of the, of their habitat. And that basically, you know, again, seemed to show that they were going closer to the keepers mm-hmm. um, during lockdown. And I do think there's an element of, well, that's what we're used to seeing. And, you know, it, potentially I, I wouldn't say it'd be wrong to suggest that there wasn't an element of missing the visitors. Like mm-hmm. the orangutans interact with people so much. Their eyes are just, I always will say, especially one orangutans the only look in her eyes, like it's, it's, it's a powerful thing, you know, to slow your body down, to really look at animals, you know, and, and take a moment and look at them and you will spot things. I, I would always recommend to people, if you can slow down your, your first step into the zoo and continue to be slow, you will see and experience so much more. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes some people, people come to the zoo very regularly and they're annual pass holders and it's as much about the exercise and the walk and the chat. Great. But if you want to get more than that, I always recommend stop and watch because you know animal behaviors, animal movements, animal feeding, mating, and giving birth—you know—all these things happen. You know, not every day, but certainly every year and every, every not far off every month. Um, so it, it is. You know, I, I would recommend anyone going into a forest, into a zoo, wildlife park. You know, slow the body down, try and turn your phone off if you can, and really take in what you're seeing. Because you know, to walk through any any place in Europe and see a rhino, I just think that's pretty profound, or a gorilla and you know, and to, to, you know, sometimes the animals that are behind glass obviously means you're only technically a few centimeters from them Mm. and interact with them and watch their hands and their eyes. I just think that's a pretty, uh, you know, amazing experience. And, you know, the hope is that these moments inspire people, you know, the world is obviously in, 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 in big danger and habitats are shrinking every year. And I've been to, I think most habitats in the world haven't been to every country in the world, but I've been to every continent bar, the Antarctic and, you know, when I've been up to the Swedish Arctic, one of my adventures to Sweden, and it was amazing. And, but I just think it's, it's um, zoos, good zoos, have the role of inspiring people to go, look how amazing these animals are. Their, their habitats are in danger, and every one of us can do things to improve the situation.
0: And um, how much physical contact with the animals is involved in the work you do, Brent, because it's just one of those things that strikes me, you know, we're a completely different speed. We can't talk to the orangutans. Right. But I mean, they have their ways of communicating with you and you with them. I know that you've spent a lot of time with the elephants, you know, among other animals that you've worked with. So how much would you s- sort of spend in their habitat being part of that? And how do you develop an understanding with them? And um, the, the big thing, uh, the first thing that will come out of my mouth will be the word calm. To be calm,
1: um, which I think with any animal, including including humans, you know, no matter what's going on, to be calm, um, positive energy, to be relaxed and happy, you know, you, you know, you shouldn't definitely come in, you shouldn't come into our job ever hungover or ever un, unhappy, you know, you know, if you're if you're with animals, they do pick up on body language, and body language is hugely important, and I think it's not talked enough about in humans. I I think psychologists I've looked at talk about, you know, 90% 90 of body language is community, of communication is body language, and certainly with animals, it's the same thing. So when we're talking, say, for example, the elephants, we do a system called protective contact training, and we do that with the elephants, and we've done it with so many different species, and you can do it with, you can do protective contact contact training from a goldfish to an elephant, to a whale, to an octopus, you know, animals, basically it's association. So you don't, they don't necessarily understand the words you're saying at the start, they will eventually Mm -hmm. But basically, if you can imagine the, the principle of protective contact training is that you're not in the same area as them, which really importantly means that they have a choice. So if they don't like the look of me or they're a bit tired or they're just not in the mood, that's fine. They don't have to train end over, game over. But, but what, because they do enjoy it, they do like to train. So to give a, a, an image in your head of basically our elephant house is a big uh, sand floor with as many features as possible to make your life as good as possible. And then in the mornings, we open up the stalls. And each elephant has their own stall. And it's a nice rubber floor. And we would say, Dina, Dina. And Dina would walk away from the sand on her own or with her calf, if she's still got a calf. Um, and she will come in. The gates will close behind her using her control. And then I would put what basically, if you imagine like a broom handle, a brush handle in her kitchen, mm-hmm. we call that target stick. We put that through the fence. Um, so we're on one side of the fence, the elephant's on the other. She will place her head on that target stick. And we will immediately give her a food reward. And that's called stationing. So the animal is now in front of you. Mm. And then with time then, even after a few days of initially starting that training, obviously all our elephants have been training years now. But if you're only starting off, you'll eventually touch another target stick off her foot. And if she brings her foot up, up to a, what we call a foot port, um, then her foot port is, is through the foot and her head is up against the fence. And there we, then, then we can work on our feet. And we have to give our elephants pedicures. Mm. We're filing off old, old skin. We're filing down excess nail growth. And it's really, foot, foot care in elephants is really important. Um, so that's and those principles are then applied for every species. Um, so if you're not feeling confident, or if you're not making yourself clear, um, they're not going to respond to you. So you have to be very clear in your own head. What do I want this elephant to do? Then you manipulate your body language to go, Dina, come this way, and, and you're going to go left. And she's you have to make exaggerate your hand movements um to basically make it very clear if you're like oh you know come on down here she's gonna like I, I don't care what you're saying I'm not interested mm-hmm. you have to get their attention elephants I would say of all the animals I worked with are the one species where uh you do need to raise your volume a little bit to be a bit more confident but with gorillas uh tigers um rhino I I, I you know you need they need to hear you you need to be loud enough Um, but with elephants especially I think maybe to do with the house there's other elephants there as well so you, they don't want, you, you don't want the case that they're starting to pick up what another keeper is saying to their elephant a few metres away. Mm. But what we've tried to do at Dublin Zoo, and it has worked well, and we've, we've gone around the world talking to other zoos and other conferences about it, is, is the choice that, you know, we never, go, we never ever go in with the elephants. And we just feel that that has worked out better for them. Um, you know, even when they give them birth, we're watching from cameras. Um, you might, I don't know if, I, I, if you know, I did a sleep study on the elephants. I looked at yep. their sleeping behaviour for 704 nights and um and it was brilliant to watch the elephant's behavior and again this was all when, when i wasn't there if you were there you know technically you could say well scientifically speaking their behavior might be slightly different because you're, you're sitting there in the corner with it with a torch or whatever so we have infrared lights so the house is completely dark and then i was able to record the sleep behavior and and basically it was a really good basis to to, to tell other zoos you know sand floors are so important it drains your urine and makes them comfortable and um, some elephants like to sleep in a big mound of sand some elephants like to fl- sleep on flat sand and, and and then the bonds as well seeing the bonds between the elephants was so different like some elephants um dina dina's daughter is asha and during the day they're very close dina's the matriarch her dina's sister is yasmin and she personality wise is a bit more of a vivacious bit more tenacious um outgoing to the confident animal like you know obviously the same way people have personalities every single animal has personality and but at nighttime asha came closer to her auntie and asha would often lie down with her auntie rather than with her mother and that might be in part that you know the bonds get stronger at night or might be in part that dina um is the matriarch and i feel and perhaps feels a stronger protective aspect over the, over the family mm. and for example when when new calves were born um especially for like the first month um the matriarch especially dina would, would stay and stand for longer because again Obviously, there's no lion going to run in and attack them. But over millions of years, they've built up this protective instinct mm. that isn't going to go. She was born in Rotterdam in, in, in Zoo in Holland. Um, and I think her parents are born in zoos as well. Obviously, the days of taking animals in the wild are, are gone, I'm glad to say. Um, so it's, it's, that, you know, those instincts are great still to see. And, and there's so much going on with animals. That's what I always emphasize to people. You know, it's so easy to look at them and go, oh, well, they're just standing there and they're not making any noise. With elephants, for example, 90% of their communication, our ears don't pick up. So when they're trumpeting, that's very high frequency uh, trumpeting that we can hear with our ears. Our ears pick up kind of of above medium to low, high frequency range. Elephants can go very low and very high. Mm. And um, so, yeah, we know for a fact that like our elephants, for example, they were recorded as part of, I think it was a PhD thesis about 10 years ago. And our elephant herd was the most vocal of all the elephant herds that she studied in Europe. Right. and we like to think because we built a family unit elephants you know decades ago you'd pick one elephant from here one elephant from there another elephant from here put them together they might form a bond a bond but they might not but the elephant asian and african elephants they form a, a matriarchal herd where the only permanent members of the herd are the um the the dominant female her sisters granddaughters cousins and the males are born they're very much part of the herd but then when once they reach puberty they have to leave and they want to leave their hormones are kicking in yeah. so we just basically repeat that and what we always do is what we call it being inspired by nature we we never think we're better than nature you know we learn from nature and that's why i love going to different habitats because you'll see different things you know just sit down in the forest sit down in an arid desert sit down in the arctic and, and just watch and learn and, and see how animals move like uh, penguins in the Antarctic you know you might have seen amazing footage of the penguins leaping out of the water and jumping up into the iceberg but yeah. the fact is that's actually quite rare um, and when you look at it, penguins more you realize they're only going to those areas when they really have to yeah. penguins are clever like all animals are clever they want to go and find a nice relaxed beach area to casually stroll out of the water mm. so things like that you know what things we, we we learn we can always improve in our knowledge like we should always be hungry to learn more
0: uh, you mentioned low frequencies there. You may hear a low frequency here because the building I have my studio in is being uh, redeveloped at the moment. So you'll get, get the occasional sound in the background. But moving on from there, Brian, one of the other things that happened during the pandemic was an awful lot of people spending an awful lot of time at home decided to get pets. I'm thinking particularly of dogs. Um, two things you said there interested me, right? One was the fact that, you know, your body language is pretty much everything. So if you're unsure when you're dealing with a dog or a cat, that's going to lead them to be unsure as well. But now when we're coming out of the pandemic... Uh, you've had animals who've you know had their owners or or you know they're at home the whole time. Is it okay to just leave them for eight hours a day and go back to the office, or do you have to sort of you know how you know do you have to change your behavior to suit the fact that you now have an animal and you need to be keeping it properly?
1: Yeah, it's, it's apt you're mentioning because I only heard today on on, on RT radio that a uh, um the, a lot of the the uh, dog rehoming charities are completely full capacity. Now I think if someone has got to the stage where they don't want their, their dog anymore. I don't think they should be, and they weren't criticizing them. I don't think someone should be criticized for giving up their dog. I, I just hope that in the future, people will be more cautious about getting a dog, about, you know, ideally rescuing a dog or if they have to buy a dog. Um, and, when, and when it comes to uh, leaving home, I absolutely believe every dog is going to miss the people out of the house. Um, and I do think these things can be softened by, ideally, you know, if there's a few people in the home, ideally someone comes back on their lunch break, on their tea break, even for an hour, um again depends on the individual dog or you know cats i think would imagine would, would just better than dogs uh, they're um, just bastards <laughs> <laughs> they're yeah they're they're, they're different animals to a dog that's for sure and with with the with dogs for example you know and it'd be good for the owners as well i'm sure to get up at that bit earlier give them a walk mm. before you go to work you know and i think if people get in that habit even half an hour is going to be great for the owner cuz i firmly believe getting your body going in the morning um, leave the phone at home bring the dog out get back you will feel more rejuvenated um and that made that way the dog should start today a little bit tired mm. um and then some dogs might like the radio on because a completely silent house gone from perhaps kids running around or, or or whatever adults in their house make a noise it's go for complete silence from a maybe from a human perspective i'm thinking well that might be too good a change and um, obviously there's some great companies out there now that make um, food enrichment devices. Mm-hmm. So especially with dry feeds, you put these dry feeds in these devices and, and uh, leave them just as you're leaving. And that means then, you know, the food is hidden inside. We've got some great balls at home for our dog. And um, it's really hard for the dog to get the food out. Obviously, you don't. I think a lot of ones are made of plastic and that are not worth the money. They're, they're just going to break. They're going to break them up, even a small dog. Um, the ones are made of rubber, in my experience, are better. Um, and the big thing, of course, as well is, if you give your dog, for example, 300 grams of food a day, if you're if you're still putting that 300 grams of food a day in their dish twice a day, and then you're them extra food for these novelty devices, well, obviously they're going to get overweight within a few weeks. Mm. So, they, and, and plus their desire to go searching for this food mightn't be too strong either if, if they're if they're not massively food orientated. So the big thing is is to start to gradually. You know, get them, make sure that they are eating the food, and and to make sure that they are are enjoying it and that they, you know you're coming home and, and it's gone and um, even the, the likes of cameras you know leave a phone like if you have a spare phone or even your own phone to, if you're interested to in see what your dog is doing when you're gone put your phone on record stick it on somewhere that's in view of where the dog is a living room whatever and walk away and see how the dog is doing and think, you know for example some dogs love lying in the sun Well, then put a nice warm bed near near your window in your living room wherever the sun is coming in and that way you're you're accommodating them if you keep watching their behavior you'll think oh well he or she likes to sit in the sun. Well, let's put the let's take the uh, the bed out of the shaded corner mm-hmm. and stick it in front of the window, and make, give it another option somewhere else, shade as well. Obviously, obviously, always lots of water, mm-hmm. and then you know if you've got a good garden that's secure. You know, some dogs might prefer to be outside. Outside, some dogs
0: might prefer to be inside.
1: Depends on where you're living and, and what the dog what the dog's
0: like. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. I was actually uh, with Grace Thunberg, the Swedish environmental activist, last week, and she has two dogs, Moses and Roxy, and Roxy mm-hmm. is actually a black Labrador from Cork and uh, so we're talking about that was, and but that was also a case where Roxy was abandoned by somebody or Roxy was just like given up for adoption by somebody and yet decided that rather than go and buying a dog because she's had dogs since she was eight or nine years old that they went and got Roxy and brought her over so you know I was telling her that the dog barked with a cork accent she didn't believe me you know <laughs> but that moves us nicely on Brent. to the last subject that I want to talk to you about because the animal world and the environment are very much linked together Um, you've made these six podcasts uh, trying to outline some of the things about the animal world but obviously the two overlap greatly you know if there was one thing you'd like people to know or like people to do you know to help the environment now because I mean you've talked about a lot of things there about woodlands right you've talked about insects and the need for insects now what's the main thing because you know a lot of it is down to corporations and states but we as individuals you know what should we be doing what, what should we be talking about if we want to make the world a better place for all of us um I
1: personally think like everything you buy basically so, uh, you know, as regards consuming, you know, mm. I think that is massive, you know, and, and you know, the phrase, you know, think globally, act locally, I know, it might be a bit cliche or whatever, but it is completely valid. So, you know, uh, I know Sweden is amazing for recycling. And in Ireland recently, they've recently said all, cycle, all plastics can be recycled. That's brilliant. And um, Obviously, in the first place, if you can reduce the amount of plastics, you're buying brilliant as well. And um, when it comes to the food you're eating, you know, again, these are things most people I'm sure would have heard, but you know trying your best to, to eat more vegetables than meat is, is a big help and um, i used to think in back in the 80s uh you know it, eating not eating animals was was purely a welfare thing but of course now we know i i think is a six or seven times more uh resources are need for meat than they are for the same amount of of, of food in in, in vegetables and um, so i do think if you know not everyone might think they're going to become a vegetarian or a vegan or like that but i do think you know I think a lot of people feel better after a meal that doesn't have lots of meat in it. And I think certain meals like, you know, if you're juicy say meat-free Mondays, maybe I may be built from there. Like, you know, with the likes of bolognases, pizzas, curries. I, I really find it hard to, 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 to notice a lack of meat in those meals. You mm-hmm. know, if you're going for the old traditional Irish dinner of meat and two veg, well then obviously you're up for a bigger challenge. Um, and there are some great companies now that are making delicious, um, you know, replacement meats. But in general, I find a lot of meals that are, are, are quite delicious uh, without any meat on the plate at all. But again, I, I, I remember watching an interview recently and um, the chairman of a, a football club in London, is this Forest Green? Is that at the club? That's Forest Green, big, yeah. Forest Green. And I thought it was a good interview. We, we mentioned, you know, the interviewer said to him, well, what about people that don't want to become vegetarian, but, you know, are thinking of reducing their meat intake by one meal a week? And he said, oh, absolutely brilliant. He goes, it's not about absolutism. Like mm-hmm. a lot of, it's so hard for to, to change your own culture. Um, but I think you know, if 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 you if you do it once a week and you feel better, you know, the goal isn't necessarily oh you must become a vegetarian to make a difference. Absolutely not. If you don't eat meat once a week, you are making a difference.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and obviously from a pollution point of view, from your own health point of view, um, from using water, from um, from you know releasing various different uh, chemicals into the, into the environment and into the air and into the sea. You know, it, to do these things, I, I think is, is a big help. And, you know, I do think as well, you do feel better. I often feel better after a, a meal that doesn't have meat in it. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, you know, if people want to continue eating meat, you know, good for them. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's it's it, it's I think it's just important to consider making an effort, you know, to go right. Well, let's let's try Monday's then. Let's have a nice salad. Let's have a curry without we don't we don't need to buy the mince or the, or the chicken. And, and go there and think, you know, did you really notice the difference? You know, hmm.
0: you sound a lot like my wife. She's been trying to get me to do this for years. And I have I have to say, I eating an awful lot more fish lately. But Brenda, I want to finish with one last question. And I cannot believe that in the 30 odd years that I've known you, I've never asked you this question. What's your favorite animal? My favorite animal is definitely the gorilla.
1: Gorillas in general. Um, I've been to, to over to Uganda. I don't know if you ever, I did it. We have a TV show called The Zoo. And I just literally brought a camera with me to that, like a little handheld camera. Um, and it was so it was quite low budget. And uh, but went to see the mountain gorillas in, the, in, in every zoo you go to, and um, you if they have gorillas, it's Western lowland gorillas you're seeing, and they're critically endangered species. And um, the ones I went to see uh, are in Uganda, um, the mountain, mountain gorillas, excuse me. And actually, what's you know, for why do I like them? Because they're you know, they're just to me, we get great, we, we can get great lessons from them. They have enormous strength, and um, but they don't abuse it, like they, they, they do use and they can use it if they need to. And the silverback males are, you know, three times the weight and strength of of the of the of the females. They're 12 times between 10 and 12 times stronger than a human. And their muscles are just completely different structure than our muscles. And, you know, they're just incredible. And I've worked with them uh, collectively maybe six or seven years over the years. And they like I still have a picture of our former silverback Harry on 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 my living room wall. And I would hands down say he is. Absolutely one of the most amazing beings I've ever met, including all the humans I've met, you know, he would definitely be in in, in the in the top 10, 10 I've met in my life because you just learn so much from them, you know, the eye contact, the gentleness, we used to train them. Again, he's quite an introvert compared to a lot of silverback gorillas um, and, you know, you just learn a lot from them. Um, but the, the great thing about gorillas, of course, is a lot of people, it's easy to convince people about gorillas. They're amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what zoos do for a lot of these species is you're, you're trying your best to, um, you know, it's easy to get support, a government support, financial support, visitor support for these animals. But so if you're, for example, trying to say Western Lowland and Gorilla Habitat, we, we sponsor about 25 different products in the wild around the world. If you're sponsoring Western Lowland and Gorilla Habitat, you know, the birds, the reptiles, the fish, the insects... The animals that live there they're getting the protection as well and importantly the local people are getting a bit of benefits as well because obviously you need you need to look after the locals as well if they're not getting included in these projects well they're going to understand feel resentful you okay. want they know the forest better than anyone flying in on a plane and um, you need to get their knowledge and you need to get their approval and you want to employ them be okay. on on a scientific basis as a driver whatever they want to do and it, and it's, it's, it's great to, to see those projects develop and the zoo has just launched a, a, a 10-year plan to basically really up our conservation goals. Um, we've, we new director started last year, Dr. Christoph uh, Schwitzer, and it's. Um, I, I am excited about, like, you know, if we're talking again in 10 years' time, I firmly believe we will have increased our conservation role a lot. Um, and so the last kind of 25 years since I have started in the zoo, um, we were getting involved in more and more conservation products, and every year, as visitors will know, every year we were building a new area. We needed, the zoo needed redevelopment and mm-hmm. that's going to continue. But uh, what's going to really continue as well and, and, and magnify is, uh, is, is 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 going to be more conservation products. And, and that's, you know, obviously with COVID and everything, the zoo has to be careful about how we do things. But I'm really excited that the zoo is going to basically change and become more of a, an organization that is a conservation organization that runs a zoo rather than the other way around Mm. so you know it is it is great and with the animals in the wild you know ecotourism things like that is is fantastic you know people pay to see animals in the wild um you know you could you could shoot a gorilla and you might get a couple of hundred dollars the person that kills it and then you know the animal is dead genetic viability of the animal's gone a cast pass can't pass on genes anymore whereas when people local people like the tiger with people that live in your tigers in india there the, the population of tigers in india has as as i think it's more than doubled in the last 10 years and up to 10 years ago it was nothing but bad news but fair play the indian government went now wait a minute let's look after our tigers they're one of our major incredible animals mm. um and and their numbers have increased i can't give the exact figure but i know it's in the absolute tens of millions every year people go to india to see tigers mm. and i think that can be done around the world you know we go to sweden and 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 see wolves and 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 um all the other amazing animals you have and um well hopefully in the future you'll have lots of wolves and um and in ireland and around the world you know i just think that if more governments think long term that's how animals can be protected and that's where hopefully zoos and other organizations will try and convince governments you know to try and, and and think long term because i do believe people animals will benefit from having a rainforest or having a temperate forest in their in their country than if it wasn't there if it was chopped down and sold for you know a small amount of money really
0: I think we all benefit from having people like you who love animals so much and not just that but who are so keen and so well able to share that knowledge and it absolutely will not be 10 years before I talk to you again in fact I'm having an idea that you and I might wander around the zoo with a microphone at some point in the very near future Brendan Walsh zookeeper, podcaster and all round Good Egg thanks so much for talking to me Thanks very much Phil Taxi some luck, yeah <laughs>